Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Eric right here from the Disco Posse podcast, and we have got a really, really good show that goes deep into some really background in the capabilities and the ethics of machine learning and AI by somebody who actually founded the term Artificial General Intelligence, or AGI. Before we get started, I want to give a huge shout out, of course, to our friends and sponsors. This show is sponsored by our good friends at Veeam Software. So everything you need for your data protection needs, you go to one spot and you can find it. If you go to vee.am forward slash disco posse, uh, you can find out more. In fact, they've got all sorts of great stuff going on, whether it's backing up your physical servers, so getting that metal off to somewhere safe, backing up your cloud servers. That's right, just because you thought it was in the cloud, it's not actually protected, it's just running on someone else's servers. And of course, if you're thinking cloud native, well, guess what? You actually got to back that stuff up too. So you can check out Kasten, and they've actually got a really cool free tool that's going to get you up and rolling on backing up your cloud native Kubernetes infrastructure. So check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash disco posse and you can find out more. Also, one more big shout out because I published a book recently and I just launched a new series. So in fact, if you want to get in and you want to get close to some really neat coaching and mentoring uh, and uh, sales and, and engagement development that I'm doing, please do go to velocityclosing.com and you can sign up. You get my four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. It's a uh, great ebook that I wrote and got really, really good feedback from already so far from many, many folks. So please do go there. Go to Velocity Closing. You get the four-step guide. Plus, you get access to the audio version of the book, read by yours truly. That was a lot of fun. And you also get access to a monthly Ask Me Anything in coaching series for 12 months, all for 27 bucks. So get on in. All right. Let's get on to the show. This is Peter Voss from IGO.ai. So A-I-G-O.ai. Peter is amazing. We get into some really deep conversations. I hope you enjoy the show. I want to thank you, Peter, for joining today, because uh, the one thing I've really found is the most prominent thing in conversations as I go and talk to more technologists and more founders is obviously AI uh, is pervasive in a lot of what we're doing, and as is the misunderstanding <laughs> of it, uh, the difference between AI and AGI, so the idea of you know where traditional just formulaic AI comes in and machine learning. And so there's a lot of crossover, I think, just in general, that I think would be great to share with the audience as well as what you and, and the IGO team are, are tackling. But with that, if you want to give us a quick introduction for folks that don't already know you, Peter, and then we'll uh, we'll jump in from there. Okay. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm Peter Voss, and I'm the um, founder, CEO, and chief scientist of IGO.ai. But I've, I've actually been working on artificial general intelligence for more than 20 years now. And we'll talk more about what artificial general intelligence is. So it's it's really what what we see in ultimately what we see in the movies and what we expect an artificial intelligence to, to be able to do. Um, so I've, I've been 
alternating between doing research by myself with a team of people and then commercializing it over the last uh, 20 years. Now, this is where it's a very interesting thing in that you're obviously your chief scientist as well as founder. You've had a real personal, you know, deep involvement in the development of technologies and, and practices around this. And, you know, when we look at where IGO is coming in, uh, maybe if you want to introduce sort of what's what's the what's the challenges that IGO is aiming to solve and uh, as well as how your background really led you to, to start that team. Right. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll give a quick uh, rundown of my, my background. I started out as an electronics engineer, um, started my own company, then fell in love with programming as hardware became program programmable. So my company turned into a software company. I um, developed um, an ERP software system, um, quite successful in that, actually managed to take the company public. And uh, it's when I exited that company, I had, had enough sort of time and money on my hands to say, well, what, what do I really want to do next? And the thing that struck me is just how dumb software really is. And, you know, I was very proud of, my, of the software that I developed, but still, whatever the programmer doesn't think of, uh, it's just going to come up with an error or do something, you know, uh, not so elegant. So I really wanted to understand how we can bring intelligence into software, how we can make software intelligent. And I, I took off uh, five years, actually, to really study intelligence from all different aspects, from starting with philosophy, uh, epistemology, you know, uh, theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? What's reality? What's our relationship to reality? Um, but also... Cognitive psychology, psychometrics, uh, you know, what do IQ tests measure? Are they meaningful? Uh, what is IQ? How do children learn? Um, how does our intelligence differ from animal intelligence? You know, all of those different aspects of really deeply understanding um, in intelligence. And then, of course, studying what had been done in the field of, of AI. And it's really the culmination of those studies uh, that I came up with a design for a thinking machine. Uh, and in 2001, I then launched my first um, AI company, um, uh, Adaptive AI, um, and um, hired about a dozen people. And for several years, we basically built various prototypes um, of testing my ideas, testing the designs, and coming up with you know various uh, iterations of, of that. In 2001, I actually also coined the term artificial general intelligence together with two other people. Um, and, and that is really to distinguish what we were doing with what pretty much everybody else in AI is doing. And we, we can talk more about the difference between AI and AGI. So it's, it's really since then, I've been on this mission to make AGI happen, to make real intelligence happen. And... Um, by 2008, I launched the first commercial company called Smart Action. It's now about 100 people. And Smart Action uses this early AGI technology uh, to make much better um, call center, automated call center experience. You know, normally when you call into a company and you, you talk to a robot, people hate that and they just press zero to get to an operator. 
Um, so, you know, with our technology, having some intelligence, uh, basically that technology is called IVR, interactive voice response. And the way we describe our, our product is an IVR with a brain. So, you know, it can have, have some understanding, some memory, some reasoning. So you have a much better experience and, and you can handle more complex conversations. So that was 2008 that I, I launched that company. And um, I found uh, over the years, I, I was getting bogged down with running a SaaS company. Basically all of the, you know, we built our own data centers, uh, redundancy, HIPAA compliance, PCI compliance, scalability, security, all of those kinds of things. And uh, didn't really have enough time uh, to, to also move forward on the, on the AI side, on the intelligence side. So I exited the company uh, about seven years ago to start Igo.ai uh, and with a new team uh, of, of a, what we call AI psychologists, linguists and cognitive psychologists, uh, basically concentrated on just the core technology. So for six years, we didn't sign up any customers or five years, um, just concentrating on technology. So last year, we finally launched Igo.ai commercially and um, what we're doing again is conversational AI. So we, um, we've not been focusing on anything like vision or robotics or anything like that, purely on <clears throat> conversation. So that's what Igo AI does now is um, working with um, enterprise clients uh, to, to be able to offer them uh, a much better conversational AI and hyper-personalized AI. And I think the interesting thing when we get caught up in the AI, especially when we get into chatbots and conversational AI, there's a real sort of struggle, I think, where people don't understand what it enables more so than what it displaces. There's an unfortunate sense that this is effectively impacting, you know, where where humans belong, right? Because at the but at the same time, in fact, I believe, and and you know, a lot of folks and yourself included, right? This very much elevates the ability for for humans to interact where they need to versus where they feel they have to, which is, I think, where a lot of this frontline conversational AI is a fantastic opportunity. Because, you know, if you look in especially health services and and you know, call centers, the difference between the traditional IVR is when someone angrily is you know mashing the zero key or yelling mm -hmm. at the IVR where we introduce those technologies and capabilities up front, you can detect that and there's opportunity to do sentiment analysis and additional things to really pull that through so that when the human, there is no recourse now, but to hand you to an operator, hand you to a person, a doctor or somebody, they're much more informed about where the state of this customer and their consumer, this recipient is. And, and I, that's why I see a huge value, but what, what is your sense when you talk to people about this and, you know, their initial reactions when you say, you know, conversational AI and, and, and what the value is? Well, the first thing, of course, is people generally have a pretty bad experience with them. Um, now, I, th I think that's sort of bifurcating in a way. You know, people still have a bad experience. Usually when they call into a large company, they're trying to get stuff done and they get stuck in IVR hell or, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or, or the chatbot really can't do anything uh, for them. Uh, but on the other hand, people have experience 
and have learned how to use uh, Siri and Alexa and so on. And, and, you know, more and more people are finding it useful, even with it's very limited. I mean, it's really not, they're not conversational. They're really one shot, you know, stimulus response. You say something, blah, blah, blah. And then it responds with one thing. It's not really that they, you can have a conversation with them as, as such. But it, it gives people a glimpse of, uh, you know, how conversational AI can be useful or how talking to a computer can be useful. Um, now, in, in terms of enterprise, um, there's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to run a call center. It's very difficult to find people uh, to train them up and to have them stick around to be able to, you know, handle the same kind of query day after day and, and complaints and so on. So it, it's not generally the most desirable job, especially for the, the, the more mundane and, and routine things. And there's a, it's, it's actually very difficult to, to, you know, to find good stuff. So there, there is a tremendous shortage. There's actually a, a, a big demand for that, for people to self, self-serve. And increasingly, people actually also, there's a, a larger and larger percentage of people who actually don't want to talk to human, who prefer to just have technology that works for them. You know, people are used to just doing stuff on their phone or on the website or, or whatever. And if they can just get it done well, they'd actually prefer that, you know, so it's a, it, it's a, it's a win-win situation. But our, you know, ambition and, and what's, what's driving me and what's driving the company ultimately is to really have something like a personal assistant you know, a, a hyper-personalized assistant that, that really knows you, knows what you want. And whether that is initially supplied by a company that you do repeat business with, like, you know, your insurance company or, um, or financial institution or medical or whatever, that, that gets to know you, gets to know what, what you want, protects your privacy and can get things done for you. Uh, but ultimately, we actually see that being owned by the person, and we call that uh, a personal, personal assistant, um, you know, personal in actually three different meanings of, of, of the word, uh, you know, personal that you own it, it's yours. Uh, so it serves your purpose, not some mega corporations uh, agenda. Uh, that's the first personal, you own it. The second personal is it's hyper-personalized to you. It's customized to you. It's not a one-size-fits-all as we, as we have now. And the third personal is the privacy issue that it, it treats your data, your information in a, in a you know, personal way and only shares things that you want to share with whoever you want to share it with. So that's sort of the ultimate vision that we see. Um, and in fact, as this personal personal assistant becomes more powerful, it really becomes an exocortex, an extension of, of your own brain, you know, that will enhance your memory, help you think things through and do things for you. Well, and you've, you talked earlier and you brought up some interesting, you know, discussion points. Well, the one thing is you definitely took time off to very thoughtfully, mindfully and intellectually approach what you were doing, right? Most folks would kind of just jump right in and and build the plane as they fly it. You you made a conscious choice to take time off and and go to the roots of cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology, and like how we learn. Not just in, even when you said it, you said not just how we learn, but how children learn, how adult like. So clearly, you 
you took a lot of your lessons from business and you said, as I approach this next thing, it seems to me that when you said, I, I'm going to approach this next thing, I want to do it in the most, you really wanted to approach this in the most intellectual and appropriate ethical way, right? So like, what's the reason why this stuff occurs? And that's a difficult difficult patience pattern, right? Most people don't have the patience to go back to the roots and then take that and then bring it into the technology. So I can't imagine that that was a light decision for you to really go back to the core of, of why and how we learn to, to take that first step. Well, actually it was, it was very, very easy. And the reason being that I'm inherently very interested in philosophy and psychology in, in addition to AI. So there was really this deep curiosity for me to, to understand, um, you know, what is consciousness? What is free will? What is intelligence? And uh, what makes us tick? Where do emotions fit in? Uh, so, you know, really from a personal point of view to better understand myself, to understand the world and um, just intellectual curiosity. Um, so th that, that was actually pretty easy. And then the other part was that clearly AI, uh, the field of AI had gotten stuck. You know, we've had AI winters and AI wasn't anywhere near delivering the promise or the, the, the goal of when, you know, the, the term was coined 60 plus years ago. It was all about building machines, thinking machines, machines that can think and learn and reason the way humans do. Uh, and originally, 60 years ago, they thought they'd crack this in you know, a few years or, or something. And then as de decades went by, um, AI really got lost. So instead of pursuing, because it turned out to be really, really hard. Um, so instead of pursuing the goal of thinking machines, uh, AI turned into narrow AI, where basically you say, well, let's solve one problem that humans do at a time. You know, whether, I mean, the famous one is obviously uh, Deep Blue, chess playing, you know, right. uh, and it's also a nice logical type of problem. So you could, and so, so you know, over the, over the decades, AI became narrow AI, but it's more profound than that. It's actually not just, is it narrow AI, but it's uh, what I describe as external intelligence. It's the intelligence of the programmer, of the data scientist, they pick a problem, they figure out in their heads through using their intelligence, how they're going to solve this problem using software, using a computer, using hardware, or using data now as, as well. But it's their solution that is then turned into code or into a data model that then solves that problem. So the intelligence doesn't really reside in the computer, in the software so much as it does in the designer. Uh, and, and of course, you know, it, that's been quite successful in, in a number of areas, but it's not ultimately what artificial intelligence, you need the intelligence to be in the machine, in the software that it can learn and it can reason. So it, that if it could learn how to play chess uh, or how to do medical diagnosis or how to uh, do translation or whatever, and not by brute force, not by giving it gazillions of examples and then kind of, you know, building a model, but learning more the way we, we do. You know, a, a child can, can learn uh, how to identify a giraffe or an elephant seeing one picture. Um, you know, it, it 
will then be able to identify it. And so it's not a statistical thing uh, that that that's really the the core to intelligence. So it's um, yeah, it's, it's it's really realizing that uh, AI wasn't on the didn't seem to be on the right path. So I needed to deeply understand what intelligence is to build an intelligence machine. And then to compare it to what had been done in the field. So I, I attended dozens of conferences, uh, both on the connectionist side uh, and on the logic side, sort of good old fashioned, you know, what's now called good old fashioned AI and then statistical connectionist. Um, and one of the things that struck me is these two fields didn't talk to each other at all. You know, they were often <laughs> sadly, look, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, look at the same problem, uh, but they couldn't make the connection uh, between the two. So I, I really came to the conclusion that a fundamentally different approach was needed to get back to the original dream, and this is why we coined the term artificial general intelligence to to really um, distinguish it from narrow AI and and you know to try and recapture what the original intent of AI was. Yeah. And if you, again, like the sort of the mapping of the concepts, like you said, of, you know, a child can literally be shown a picture of, of an elephant or a balloon and they can, it can fairly immediately learn that process. But yeah, here was, we've got deep blue, you know, able to, you know, take down the greatest chess players on earth, but you couldn't put it in front of a checkers game and have it win because it was very, very specific in, in what it was targeting. The uh, and another uh, you know person who I read of a lot of and sort of followed in the career Ray Kurzweil of course uh, also with his concepts of you know talking about how to create a mind and right. as a so I I'll look at Ray's example and I treat him sort of like a futurist more like obviously there's stuff he's actively doing but it's very it's not not on the forefront you you're taking that sort of per, first principles approach and you're you're actively trying to. Right affect the outcome and, and actually create something from it. So where do you see that merger between say the think tank where you have to understand why we're doing it? And it's it's very easy to stay in that research phase, I would believe, because there's there's probably a healthy alt, you know, ecosystem for that without having to go and now at a commercial side, try and bring this to the market. So it's a very interesting uh, question, you know, how much progress can you make with a sort of academic or theoretical approach? And how much progress can you make uh, with it being commercially driven? And the conclusion I've come to is that you really need both. Um, and there's sort of the um, technical theoretical reason why you need it. And then there's potentially the practical reason. So the practical reason is that your commercial side can generate the money uh, to to pay for the research. Now, obviously, if you can find other ways of paying for research, then you, you wouldn't need that. But uh, research by itself usually has strings attached to it, uh, and and uh, that could really hobble it. And I've, I've seen this um, with the success of deep learning and machine learning over the last almost 10 years now. Um, research is uh, in true AI has really come to a standstill because it sucked all of the oxygen out of the air. If you want to do a PhD, it's deep learning or nothing, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you want to get funding for a project, you want to get published, you know? So, uh, so research is, is, is actually, and, and even getting funding from, you know, some 
rich person or something, how likely are they to fund something that isn't deep learning or machine learning? Because that's what all the experts say. You know, for example, we had a brilliant intern from uh, from Germany work for us, and he really understood the, 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 the sort of cognitive science and the approach we were taking. And um, so he was with us for a year, and then he went back to Germany to do his PhD. He couldn't find a sponsor for cognitive architecture, cognitive approach, so he ended up doing it in deep learning, machine learning. You know, wow. we, we lost lost him to to that. And then, of course, you become an expert in that field, and that's going to be your career, and you, you're lost. So that that's um, you know talking about the. Um, yeah, if you could just do pure research by itself and had the funding and it wasn't constrained by, um, you know, the sort of academic constraints of, of funding and publishing and sponsorship and so on, um, then, yes, I think you could make progress. And, I mean, we I, I obviously personally spent a lot of time in, in sort of R&D mode, um, you know, the original five years, and then we spent another five years with a team of 12 people. And then when I started IGO, Again, you know, another five years of, of sort of development. It wasn't so much research anymore because we already knew what we needed to do. It was really more developing the technology further. And, you know, five years seems like people say, well, five years? Why, why do you take five years? Well, part of it was we could only afford to hire 12 people. If I had been able to hire 100 people, then it, it probably would have only taken two years. You know, it doesn't obviously scale uh, Right. <laughs> it takes you a year or more just to find the right people and bring them on board and, uh, you know, so, so on. But, um, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a deeper reason why I believe you really want both of them. And, and that is, looking back now, I found that a, a lot of the early work that we did in R&D um, was uh, was useful but wasn't as useful as it could be because you pick your own problem space and it's just too easy to um, pick problems that you know you can solve rather than pick problems you have to solve uh, so it's, the it's, very it's, roots of human behavior, right? We 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 know we look for that. There there's an outcome that we can achieve here, and we will receive a, a happy response as a result. Right, right. You know, even if they're very difficult problems, but sort of problems you feel you you can you can solve. And then the things you get where you get stuck on, uh, well, okay, we'll get to that later. You know, we don't know how to solve this problem, so. Um, so you don't always pursue and work on the things that are really, really important to solve intelligence. Um, whereas if you have a commercial um, a project or a very, you know, particular practical problem you're trying to solve, that's your reality check. That's your grounding. You have to solve every problem that gets, gets in the way. So, so that, that is where um, having a, a particular task, and it doesn't have to be monetarily commercial, you know, but, but having, having a, a practical goal you're trying to achieve, I think is really, really important that your, that your R&D isn't, um, isn't just theoretical, isn't, you know, is grounded, basically. Now, the downside of the commercial side is what I call the narrow AI trap. And um, it's basically as soon as you have a commercial goal, uh, you clearly want to satisfy your customers as quickly as possible. You usually have to satisfy investors as well. Um, 
so what happens is instead of solving the problem the way it should be solved with the intelligence in the machine, you resort to external intelligence. You know, the, so as a programmer, you say, oh, I know how to solve that problem. I'll just write a program or I'll hard code this or I'll, you know, I know how to solve it. And basically that hard coding then goes into your, in, into your data model or into your uh, code. So it's very, very difficult to pursue commercial goals and not fall into that narrow AI trap. So it, it's really the, the experience I've, I've had for so long now that allows me to better balance those two things. Um, you know, it's still, it's still tough because obviously we want to pr uh, deliver the best possible product to our customers as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. Uh, so that always pulls, pulls you away from solving intelligence. And, and but, it's, yeah. it's a real interesting thing that I'd like to dig in a bit further on, Peter, because it, it highlights for me the challenge, like you said, where we end up even in the field of research where people could do incredible work funding it. It ultimately moves them down this trap of going towards things that are believed to be valuable in funding. It just in the same way that when you take on investors, you know, the goal of venture capital investors is to retain to get an outsized return on their investment. They love and believe in what you're doing, but they more so believe in your ability to deliver an outsized result from that investment. And it's, so there's there's different things that are at play in the choice for how to go towards the outcome. And I find that research. You know, it, that's that's where I see the struggle happening is that some inc incredible people, they have to immediately move to either, like you said, areas where they know they can get funded or they have to immediately move to the commercial side and exit the research system, exit the, the school system and then take on somebody else's goal. And, and it's, yeah, I find, yeah. You know, how do you feel about that? Like, is, do you feel like there's a bit of a rift in our ability to innovate and get that sort of the more first principles thinkers you know, giving them the time and the funding to achieve better results. Uh, yes, it would. It would be nice if uh, more people with deep pockets would, um, you know, understand this 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 issue, this dilemma uh, of doing the kind of research that is properly grounded and isn't just about you know getting the next paper published or having an incremental improvement on some benchmark. You know, from 92.3% to, you know, 92.8%, you know, and then, okay, you get published and you've, you've done something, but you've probably not really moved the field uh, forward. So, um, yeah, I think the, the answer is to have people that, that have enough money that have the luxury of uh, pursuing things that don't necessarily have a, a short-term return or not the maximum short-term return but at the same time, being grounded, not just wasting their money on, you know, a, a lot of um, anti-aging research seems to have been sort of, okay, let's throw a few billion at this, you know, that some rich people have, have, have done, but without really deeply understanding what they're trying to, to do or how they're going to do it. Now, I could obviously be criticized for this, uh, <laughs> this, this, this comment. Um, it's an area of interest for me, but I'm certainly not, uh, you know, that that expert in it. But it it seems that 
um, doing more of the research to fundamentally understand aging first, the way sort of I think it's important to really understand intelligence first before you try to build an intelligent machine. Uh, I, I think the, the, the model, I mean, there are a lot of rich people out there in the world that have much more money than they clearly need, you know, uh, for, for themselves to be, be happy and comfortable. And I think Elon Musk is a fantastic example of uh, using his money and actually getting investors behind him. I mean, going to Mars, does that make any sense, you know? Well, it makes sense to, to, to some people, and but w what does it take to actually get to Mars, you know? And uh, obviously, I mean, it's amazing the kind of innovations he comes up with, but it's clearly not for short-term commercial gain. But the technology he's uh, developing and uh, sort of almost as a byproduct of wanting to go to Mars is incredibly valuable or will be incredibly valuable. So... It'd be, be good to have more of that. But in, in the field of AI, it's it's really just been marching down the wrong path um, in the, the approaches uh, that are taken now. And, um, you know, I, I, I talk about using DARPA's model of the three waves of AI. Uh, basically, everybody's still working and focused and all the money is going into first and second wave. And not almost no effort is is going into the third wave of of AI cognitive architectures. Now the the one thing that I think is also the challenge and the struggle when we get into moving towards that third wave and 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 advanced AGI is the the very human fear of replacement. Uh, you know where. And 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 in general, just also the ethics, I think, are are a strong thing. And, and look, I don't want to I don't want to pull into a huge ethics you know, discussion because you've probably been asked that far more than than you'd wish to spend your hours on. But you know, when we talk about you know, if we had a system where you know effectively a, a machine is told to come to the greatest outcome of like how do you reduce uh, the spread of contagions? Well, you know. Uh, by some means, you would you could guess that an AGI would say, "Well, easy, get rid of those that spread the contagion." You know, reduce, like if 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 it chooses a goal that you didn't believe was the actual goal, but the machine understands, well, I've got a, got a better way to get to this goal. And you know, there's a real human attachment to that scenario. Uh, I'm just curious on, you know, yeah. where how often you get pulled into those discussions and and where you see those playing out in people's understanding of what AGI truly can do. Right. Well, I'm actually pretty happy to get drawn into uh, discussions of, of ethics and AI ethics. I've actually written quite a lot about um, ethics uh, as well. And I, I don't find that generally people are afraid of AI. Um, you know, there's obviously a whole industry now of AI risk. You know that has it, its own momentum of scrambling for funding, and you know there, to my mind, it wasn't very helpful for Elon Musk to say that you know AI is the most dangerous thing that we could could think of. You know, but of course he goes flat out to try and make it happen. <laughs> yeah. so, um, it's a tough one, like you said. He's and that's the thing that people will always remember. Like you could say a thousand things that they will latch on to the one thing. And that was one that definitely stood out, unfortunately, among yeah. many comments. Yeah, it makes for a good, good headline as well. And, you know, of course, movies will always portray 
uh, AI in a in a dark, negative, uh, and, and threatening way. But I don't think that on a day-to-day basis that I, I, I don't really find that the lack of funding or support is because people are afraid of it, by and large. I mean, there are obviously exceptions. There are people who are uh, genuinely uh, afraid of, of AI and don't want to see it happen. Um, in fact, I was uh, um, surprised, actually, a bit dismayed that uh, I, I met quite a few years ago, I met uh, Douglas Hofstadter, um, a hero of, of, of mine in the AI field, and I asked him about, you know, when he thinks AGI will happen or what his thoughts are on that. And he he said he hopes never. And uh, he's really personally afraid of, uh, he doesn't want his grandchildren to grow up in a, in a, in a world that has superhuman level AI. Um, now, you know, he, he's, he's, there's a man I, I admire and he's come to that, that conclusion. So I, I don't want to dismiss that. Uh, but as I say, I, I don't find that most people are concerned about that. Um, now, will a, will human level AI, um, AGI, will that change society in that? Yes, profoundly. But there are a couple of arguments that one one can have. The um, one is, will AI be friendly? You know, is AI an inherent risk? And we can talk about that. And my my short answer is almost certainly not. Whereas you know, some other people like Eliezer Yudkotsky will say almost certainly it will be. Uh, uh, you know, against humans, it will be unfriendly unless we do give him money, and you know, they come up with a solution to prevent that. So my my conclusion is exactly the opposite. And you know, obviously worked on the technology for a long time. I've thought about it from from uh, philosophy, ethics, and and so on. And uh, so I, I see very little reason of why it should be unfriendly. It in in and we can, we can go into some of the details, but inherently we are building a machine. Uh, whose, whose purpose it is to to serve us, you know, it doesn't have a reptile brain uh, that is pre-programmed to f- for survival and reproduction, as as we are. So it doesn't inherently have those those drives. There's no reason why it should have those drives. But again, it's a it's a it's a complex uh, complex discussion. Um, but I, I also think there's a good argument to be made that we need AGI to save ourselves from ourselves. Society is becoming so complex. I mean, there are many examples we can see. Politics is obviously a, a, a good one, but then you know, environmental degradation and how we aren't really getting as much a handle on poverty and war as quickly as we should. I mean, things are getting better, but you still wonder, uh, you know, why do we have so much poverty and, and, and wars and irrationality in the world. So there are many ways in which society could go wrong. And I I feel there's a good argument to be made that we need AGI to help us solve these problems, to help us think things through uh, how society should be better managed or manage itself and how we could deal with, you know, diseases and uh, epidemic is obviously a a, a key topic now. So I I think we need AGI. And then Lastly, if you ask people, individuals, you know, would you like to win the lottery? You know, would you like to be able to not have to worry about money? 
to be able to buy things for people you love or to you know to be able to pursue the things that really interest you that you wouldn't have to work well the vast majority of people will say yeah of course i'd love to win the lottery now whether they would be able to cope with it or not i mean we know a lot of people aren't that happy after winning the lottery but most people would feel that that's that's desirable and getting agi is essentially like everybody winning a lottery it, you know, the, the the thing that you brought up is very important it's the there's the conceptual belief of the what the outcome will result in right and, and lottery is a great example where everybody just thinks oh of course if i had if i had money it would make everything better uh you know it would it would give me all these freedoms not realizing the everything that comes along with it and as you said we've seen it proven out in a very small group of folks because it's a, a fairly relative to you know seven and plus billion people on earth how many win the lottery how many do have a truly positive you know result at the end of it uh it's tough even in general like just day to day when we look through and like you said talk about our exposure to ai and it it becomes a a very true you know map to cognitive behaviors right there's the there's the experiencing self you know so we we think everything's okay and but then you know the remembering self will go back and often rewrite <laughs> things Right. But right. the worst is that the the pre-belief, you know, the pre-understanding of what that outcome will be is often so vastly different. Mm -hmm. And because they haven't had a chance to experience it. So as we those three phases, now we get into, you know, out of the seven billion people, how many actually actively care about AI being introduced into the world? How many of them actively distrust AI? And if we actually subbed out, you know, it broke out the pie chart of the population that way, we'd probably find that it's a bunch of noisy folks on Twitter <laughs> who are actually the ones that are the biggest pro, you know, opponents to it, but more so at a, you know, 140 characters or 280 characters at a time, then actively going into the industry and trying to affect the outcome, which I, which like you said, look at Elon. There's no... He, by any measurement of our ability to survive as, as a human, Elon will not live to see the outcomes that he's building towards. And he's acknowledged himself that it's, this is a very much, you know, you can't even say it's a moonshot, it's a Mars shot, right? It's, it's far beyond what anybody would say is intelligent to take on as a task. But the only way we're going to get to it is by somebody doing it. And it's just, I think it's way too easy for a lot of folks to just, say, well, if it, we aren't going to get there, then there's no point in beginning. And that would, you know, so you end up with this dichotomy of, of folks that are, you know, especially with active voices in the industry. Uh, yes, it's easy, easy to say we don't want it if you don't know how to, 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 to get it, you know. Yeah. But the, uh, the benefits of, of that AI can provide um, in you know helping us solve so many of the problems, I mean diseases and and uh, aging and pollution and uh, you know even the cost of goods and uh, yeah I mean it can address poverty. I mean they they just such an enormous number of of benefits uh, from from that. But you're right, it it takes people who are really passionate about the end goal and. Um, and either have the mental approach or can afford to not worry about the intermediate, uh, you know, sort of payoff, uh, as, as it were.
the uh, the one thing that's uh, always amazing as I look more and more, especially in the research field, you realize like, you know, actually I recently spoke with the fellow named Joe Bhakti and he founded a company called QuantGene and their, their goal is using machine learning towards uh, solving uh, diagnostics for cancers. And he has the same sort of concept. He's like, look, if I'd listened to everybody, I've got, I'd have gotten into, you know, family, you know, as a family physician, I've had an, a successful career by any measure. Uh, but I said, he said, I, I, I want to go further. I want to take these first principles capabilities and I want to not just incrementally make, you know, prostate cancer more discoverable and, and right. solvable. He says, I, I, I want, we want it all. And like, that's, and he says, by most people's opinions, it was a fundamentally terrible idea to do. He says, and that's why it's the greatest thing he feels he's doing because they're achieving results now in being able to make these big, big changes. And and that's where, you know, like I said, you, even when you described it, you said it was actually an easy decision to take the time to understand why we're doing this. It's actually not an easy decision by most people's ability because you are a rarity, Peter, and that you are taking a very noble mission on, I think, in, in doing that. It's, and uh, we need more Peter Vosses in this world to, to do that. Yeah, I, th I, th I think it's a matter of, of saying, you know, do, do you feel you still have some, you know, goal, materialistic goal that you have to achieve or prove, or, you know, are you sort of beyond that and say, well, no, I want to do something that's really important, you know, important to me and hopefully important uh, to other people. And w once you come to that conclusion, um, then, yeah, it, it, it becomes easy. And I mean, it's great that generally across the world, um, wealth is increasing. I mean, the number of millionaires and billionaires uh, is, you know, increasing I don't know, exponentially, certainly very, very rapidly. And, and that's good because there are more, more people who are potentially in the position to, to do this kind of thing. Not that you need to be a, a billionaire to do it. I mean, you just need to, you know, in some cases, it's um, the spouse who's earning money and that's the other spouse pursue their, their right. goal and dream. But then many of these dreams, um, like AGI, you can't just do by yourself, you know, and I imagine cancer research or, or any of it, or like going to Mars, um, you actually do need a lot of, lot of money to do it. As I said, you know, the uh, I was limited to employing 12, 10, 12 people uh, for my research. And if I tried to do it by myself, you know, if I didn't have the funds to, to actually employ people, then yeah, it would, would take forever, <laughs> you know? So, and we, we obviously very, uh, now very much gearing, uh, gearing up to increase uh, the, 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 our team on the, on the development side as well, on the AI side. So, you know, one of the principles that our investors also understand and buy into is that we are going to grow our development team as we become more successful. You know, so we are not going to maximize profits in the company. Uh, absolutely. That uh, it's just a given that we will continue to increase the IQ of, of the system with sort of more fundamental uh, development and some research. Um, as we commercially uh, grow grow the company, and of course, the, the the ideal is that this becomes a virtuous cycle, where the development makes your product better, and your better product gives you more money to in, increase development. You know, now if if I could write a big check myself, we could kind of 
accelerate that, you know, somebody could write a big check without destroying the company. Yeah, well, and I think that's also the uh, the the dilemma that you face as a founder is that maintaining sort of the vision and core principles that you have for the firm and for the team. And then as you grow the organization, it's a, it's a very unique and challenging responsibility because you have to, you have to make sure that you maintain that as you grow. And, and, you know, and you saw that, you know, in the past, of course, those you had, you know, successful exits and chosen exits, uh, you know, through, through time, you know, it's, you know that the evolution of the company is often far beyond that of the founder. And so there will be a point where you have to sort of infuse that that vision and, and that core to the heart of the, the organization. And so that you hope that at least even if you choose to exit for whatever reason, mm-hmm. that it will continue on in, in the faith uh, that you've you, you created it in. Right, right. Yeah, I mean that's having the the right partners in in business. You know, the the, the really the whole company uh, ideally would would share that vision. And you know, we have a fantastic team, people uh, who you know are really passionate about what we're doing and and uh, basically making Igo smarter. You know, but also in a practical way. Um, but yeah, you know, I certainly hope that this is a vehicle that will take us to AGI, um, Igo.ai. And um, when people ask me, you know, well, what, when, you know, do I want to do something different? Well, when Igo gets smarter than I am, that's that's when I will uh, take it take it easy. At the moment, I, you know, my passion is I work every weekend. Uh, that that's my passion. I couldn't think of doing anything else. Now this can happen one of two ways that I go get smarter than me. Um, you know, I can get dumber and I go can get smarter. So <laughs> when those, if I, if I get dumb enough. There are two directional that. forces that are at right. play here. <laughs> right. Now, the other thing that I've, I'm always curious is as you have to take this vision and the, and the capabilities and, and the direct and what the company is solving, you know, as you, especially go to investors and customers, how, how do you find the gap of understanding now relative to when you began in you know that early in you know literally coining the phrase for AGI? Like you must have seen an incredible evolution in how much different it is to tell the story to today's audience than it was in the past. And is it still a challenge sometimes, depending on, on who that audience is? Uh it's become more of a challenge um, because you know there's a whole generation now of people who think of AI as being deep learning, machine learning. You know, the more data you throw at it, you build a statistical model, and that's AI. Uh, Ten years ago, we didn't have that. Uh, so it, it, they often you're talking to people who really have no idea about you know what intelligence is or um, you know, early approaches to AI and 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 so on. So in that in that way, it, it actually become more challenging um, that you know most people equate AI with uh, deep learning, machine learning. Um, I, I mean, my own journey in terms of you know uh, pitching this to uh, employees and co-founders, investors, and so on over the years. Um, certainly, when I started. Um, you know, in, in earnest, putting together a team in 2001, 
uh, I I thought that we would would be able to get to human level or near human level intelligence much quicker than we did. So it it certainly turned out to be um, much harder than I thought. You know, after doing spending five years doing the theory, it, it, and on paper it all looked okay. We know what we need to do. Uh, we just need to do it. You know, but then as we started building these prototypes. Uh, we certainly made some good progress, but also realized um, just how hard it is to uh, to get to human level understanding and what the challenges are. So I, I think I have a more realistic view now of you know just how difficult the the issues are. But from an approach and architecture point of view, I would say almost nothing has changed. And you know, looking sort of from from a higher level, um, I think the original understanding of intelligence, the importance of concept formation, of context, of metacognition, and you know, some other technical uh, issues, uh, has just been reinforced that we need to build those machines. How absolutely crucial uh, interactive learning is, you know, one-shot learning and interacting with the environment. You can't just collect a bunch of data, uh, build a model, and then have a kind of a read-only model. The, the, the model needs to be built by interacting with the environment. It needs to be able to respond to things in the environment. It needs to be able to act on the environment and have that interaction. Um, so, you know, that's just been reinforced uh, that we need that. I have a much greater appreciation of the narrow AI trap, how, how hard it is to run a commercial operation and not just kind of, you know, use human the program is intelligence to solve the problem rather than trying to build the intelligence in, in the machine. But we, we have, a, a, I think, a clear path uh, to getting closer and closer to human level. And I, I don't see any reason why we couldn't get there. It will just take you know, a, a, a lot of effort for, for a number of reasons. But it, it, it is, um, as I say, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, the, to even have a conversation about that because of the prevalence and the, the enormous success in many ways that deep learning machine learning has had, especially in driving advertising. And that's, of course, you know, billions Sad. billions, <laughs> sadly, that's the first place it was applied, right? <laughs> and still the main place where it's applied. I mean, it's recommendations, placing targeted ads and, you know, that's, that's what people really use it for. And, and it, it is, of course, very successful in that, in that area. Yeah, the and it's always an interesting thing. And I look, especially as as folks who you know the intelligence that's being put behind that, because obviously it's a it's a very commercially strong industry, and then there's a there's a lot of ability to have you know financial feedback from that will be positive in growing other areas. So it's always tough. Like I'm always torn because I'm like, ah, uh, you know, I, I wish we didn't have to do that. But the hope is that in doing that, that there's things that come out of it, you know, and I look obviously like other folks like Cassie Kozrakov, who's a, you know, fine, uh, you know, incredible mind in, in AI and, and, and what she's doing with through Google. And you just hope that hopefully she's, you know, that she and the team also get a time to go outside of just the, the, the ad world and really bring back to medical and, and environmental and, and areas where we can take these capabilities and then apply them into other parts of the world that we can have a greater long-term effect rather than just telling me that because I bought this book, I would probably like this other book, <laughs> which is uh, where an unfortunate amount of, of that work tends to go. 
when you when you look right now, Peter, at people that are coming up, you know, through the the university system, I'm curious how well prepared are today's students coming into the university ecosystem with what capabilities are out in the world right now, technologically and and you know at this place we are with AI and and moving towards AGI. We've obviously got cloud learning. We've got the cloud computing that enhances the ability for people to begin without having to be commercially bound, like financially bound to a lot of stuff. But is the is the the intellectual side of it and the research side of it keeping up, or or where do you feel those are aligned right now? Well, certainly in the field of AI, I think it's it's a uh, it's bad. I mean, I can almost say an unmitigated disaster because it's almost like what we learned about AI in the first few decades is being lost. You know that that people come into the field now uh, knowing only about statistical approaches, essentially. You know, uh, and you know some some logic things, but it's uh, you know really all brute force. Uh, statistical, and I don't see that getting us anywhere in in real AI, you know, in real really intelligent systems. And I'm not sure how we're going to recover from that. But the whole academic system, as you know, I mentioned earlier as well, is not actually very well aligned with what you need to make breakthroughs in artificial general intelligence. On the one hand, you have have it driven very hard by benchmarks, established benchmarks. And whether these benchmarks are actually particularly meaningful or not, uh, that's what people have to do. This is how what they're measured by. You know, how are you doing on this benchmark? And and that's kind of quick and quick and easy way to measure their 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 worth, um, supposedly. But you know, I think that's that's very bad. Um, and you know, and then obviously a lot of lot of people in academia are now also being um, sucked into commercial things. You know, with I mean, there's a lot of opportunities, and it's great for 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 young people to be able to quickly jump into uh, a startup. And I think that's super exciting. You know, getting the, the business experience um, that you know there's just such a lot of uh, there's such a lot of opportunities for young people from academia to very quickly get involved in commercial projects and, you know, incubators and, and startups. The question is more, the business experience is great, I think, but ultimately, what are they doing? Are they doing the next Uber for dog food or, <laughs> you know, uh, getting the business experience is great, but what is the business actually doing? You know, it, it's uh, capturing keystrokes so that you can do even more targeted advertising or right. sell sell data to somebody else and um because obviously people funding these incubators and that you know want want to have see the unicorns you know and, and see the, see the success so yeah I, I i'm not very optimistic that uh we're getting a lot of people who actually take the time to really understand intelligence in fact there's this whole kind of subjectivism in philosophy you know it says well intelligence is whatever you say it is you know or i mean words are whatever you you say they are they really have no 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 grounding to reality you know we we make up reality and uh, so this that that doesn't that doesn't help either 
it, it is a it is a very interesting thing and, and i i also appreciated that you you know in your choice to go down the road you could go down the pure path of just studying the science of you know and then the technology but adding philosophy you know into it is important and i like in you know, there are a lot of folks that are really uh you know strong in in the field of physics and mathematics they're usually much better off they say in the time they've spent in studying that side of the world you know uh i'd say folks like sam harris will say the most profound thing he did for his intelligence you know his intellectual studies was to discover mushrooms you know so there's his choice of going down and, and understanding that really opened up how he learned about behavior and 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 it, it opened him up to different things if you look and you can study philosophy it does open that door to much more why and and and, and like you said it's as a as a researcher, as a founder, you know, to have those roots, I think is important. Now, when you're choosing a team and you're choosing your, you know, your people that you're going to work with and, and build with, I'm curious, Peter, what's your, what's your sort of selection process and, and how do you find the, the folks that you know are, would be a good fit for you? Yeah. So a, a lot, a lot of the people we've, we've hired that we have in our company, um, are pretty much straight out of college or with, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, obviously engineers, if we, software engineers, we want them to have some working experience in actually engineering. But on the, the side of what we call AI psychologists uh, who are really working on understanding Igo's brain and improving it, um, we, we, there isn't really any training uh, that they could have because our approach is so different. And if we had somebody who had, you know, a decade or more of AI experience, that would actually be much harder for them to unlearn what they've learned in AI. Uh, so we're really looking for for smart people, motivated people, and typically they have, um, you know, a good understanding of language because we're doing conversational uh, AI. That's where our focus is right now. Um, and so cognitive psychology and linguistics are usually the two things that come together. But you, you actually raise another important point in terms of uh, AI, more bro broadly AI researchers. Um, what I've found is I've had some brilliant engineers uh, work for me over the years that fundamentally are logicians or mathematicians uh, or statisticians. You know, they, they, their training, their background is logic-based in some way. And um, they often cannot relate to the problem we're trying to solve, to intelligence, from a cognitive psychology point of view at all. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a problem. And, and of course, the, the brilliant people we have driving um, machine learning, deep learning now, are typically mathematicians, statisticians, logicians. Right. That's their background. That's their training. That's their strength. But you cannot solve. I believe very strongly you cannot solve artificial general intelligence or AI um, without first understanding it from a cognitive psychology point of view. You first have to, you know, uh, cognitive psychology really being uh, cogn cognitive uh, science, uh, cognitive psychology, cog and uh, and also. Um, epistemology, I think, is necessary, so cognitive science. Um, because you really have to understand what intelligence is first and to some way how it operates in, in, in humans to be able to build a machine that has intelligence. 
And that's quite rare because typically uh, cognitive psychologists uh, aren't, aren't very good at programming on, you know, sort of logic, mathematics, and so on. That's normally not their forte. So the, the people we have on our team typically are comfortable in both sides. They're comfortable in the sort of logic programming side of things, uh, but, but also understand um, intelligence from a cognitive psychology point of view. So you first have to understand the problem from a cognitive psychology point of view, but then you also have to have the skills and understanding and, and mindset to be able to solve it in a computer. Right. Yeah. It's the, the difference between me uh, writing a, a large scale program to use Bayesian inference based on past purchases for my wife to decide what I should get her for Valentine's Day or me asking her, sweetie, what would you like for Valentine's Day? <laughs> it's a, the beautiful pairing of those two things, right? <laughs> right, right. Now, if you could pick something tangible and meaningful to you, Peter, I, underneath all this, I, I can imagine you must have a you know, or even a personal or, or at least a goal that you, you would like to see solved through the capabilities that, that I go and your team and, and other folks in the industry, like what, what can AGI really do? What's a meaningful thing that you're hoping to see? Well, you know, a deep, deep mind in, in a way is say it that you solve intelligence and then let it solve everything else, you know? So intelligence by itself, building a machine with intelligence and all the benefits that machine intelligence has, you know, being able that you can do a million copies of it once you have an AI that can be a cancer researcher and has all the knowledge of a cancer researcher, you can make a billion copies of it and suddenly you have a billion PhD level cancer researchers, you know, right. or, or whatever. Um, so really what motivates me is uh, cracking AGI, but uh, there, there is something that is that is in a way more important. I, I love life, and I'd like to have more of it. And uh, I'd like other people who want to have more of life to to have to be able to have more of life. So basically, anti-aging to be able to uh, be able to have extend our lives uh, indefinitely, um, you know, for as long as we want to live. Because I, I think it's kind of a cruel joke that you know evolution um, gave us this you know the, the wonderful ability to understand the world, to achieve things in the world, you know, to love, to appreciate things, and and you know just to to live, to and to be able to experience life at the level at which we as humans can do that. But typically, it takes us a while to really figure out how to how to live, you know, and. Uh, you know, after being married a few times and raised a few kids, had a few careers, you know, a few bankruptcies, and you know, you're kind of starting to get the handle of, uh, of, uh, oh yeah, I'm getting a handle on how to live this life, you know, and then it's over, you know, by the time you you learn how to live live life. So I I think um, it'd be great if we could use uh, AI to help us extend uh, hum healthy human life, you know, um, so. That that is a particular goal, and I'm I'm personally very interested in life extension. Um, I actually have been on calorie restriction for the last twenty years to try and eke out as many extra healthy years as I can. And as Kurzweil also writes, you know, the the bridge to a bridge. Uh, so if we can live long enough to benefit from life's initial life extension technology, which may be quite limited, uh, um, but might buy us an extra five years. During those five years, 
um, the technology might improve to buy us another 10 years, you know. So um, I don't know if it's going to happen, um, but I, I think that is a very worthwhile goal to pursue is for us to be able to extend the life. Yeah, and it's it is a it's a noble goal, and and I mean everything you're doing has a a very noble outcome, and and I appreciate that you're you there are there are Peter Vosses in this world that are doing this sort of thing because I think that's truly what we need. It's funny when you talked about sort of calorie restriction and just you know making personal choices. I remembered years ago seeing there's a film called Transcendent Man. It's actually about Ray Kurzweil, and it, and it's and, it, and the the filmmaker at some point they actually sort of hone in on the fact that he eats like just a, an armload of pills on a daily basis, and he's effectively. You know, mo a lot of his diet is is very you know sort of purist and it's it's literally chemical and that he's you know there's raw enzymes basics that will just what the body needs, you know. And to most people, they're like, oh, you know, I don't know if that's actually going to work. But even like people ask me like, what do you why do you eat you know particular types of foods and styles of foods and exercise the way you do? And I say, well, I, my goal is to you know, live longer to be healthy throughout that course of that life. And, and they often say, well, you know, it probably doesn't make that much of a difference. And I said, well, I, I don't know, but I will know when I'm old enough to have looked back on it. <laughs> and I think that's, that's my own personal choice to, to try and, you know, live well and, and do good things. Uh, and it's funny, you know, one other thing too, Peter, you talked about, you know, uh, somebody else who I've, uh, I remember hearing the phrase from Peter Thiel and he says, you know, we were, we were promised the future of Star Trek, but all we got was the Star Trek computer. And and I do love that you're working towards further than, you know, let's actually get outcomes from that computer and, and see what we can do to affect the world in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there's very good evidence so that, you know, a healthy lifestyle does uh, in increase your, your health span. Um, I mean, sure, unforeseen things can happen, you know, but uh, statistically, I think there's a very strong correlation that, you know, the last 15, 20 years of your life are going to be uh, a lot, you're going to be a lot better shape and probably live an extra 10 years, you know, compared to the average American kind of diet and health. Yeah, it's one thing I do hope that, you know, just in the same way with what we can do as a society towards, you know, technologically and just, you know, in a community, you know, what can we do to better the world? And it's funny, even personally, people that the last place they look is, is what's on the plate in front of them. It's like, how do I affect the future? I want to do all these things for my kids. And yet they, they make uh, unfortunate personal choices on a regular basis. And it's, it's hard, you know, because we're fighting our own brains you know ability of course sugar tastes better of course these things you know like we our body is meant to react but if we can you can retrain yourself to react positively to other things like i used to always joke with people i'd say you know you go to mcdonald's or whatever and you eat and i, I don't mean to pick a mcdonald's but just as an example a good fast food and that's why i should pick a mcdonald's as i can <laughs> but they you know like in a couple hours later you really regret that what you did right and i'd say i regret it on the way in the restaurant like i already know i'm going to feel bad on the first bite you know and i don't even go anymore just because it's like at first it'd be like oh, i'm gonna go because my kids are going or friends are going and now i'm just like i'd just be happy sitting on that table with an empty tray in front of me and as right. i know i'll feel better in the in the world for for having done that 
but uh, no, it's good. So Peter, anything else? Um, you know, what's the best way if, if people want to follow what you're doing? Obviously, uh, we can go, folks can go to, to Igo, A-I-G-O dot A-I uh, and, and see yeah. what's going on there. I also loved your, uh, you know, the beautiful per mixture of, of human and technology. I like, you know, your marketing folks are fantastic. It's beautiful phrasing. So the future is here. We know because we created it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's the marketing side of things. Uh, yeah. I also, my, my, uh, I have a lot of my articles on medium.com. So you can just uh, look medium.com in my name, but yes, I go.ai. We actually have links to, to uh, quite a bit of stuff. And apart from that, yeah, I'm on Facebook and Twitter as, as well. And you always welcome hearing from, from people. And um, so, and obviously anybody who wants to help us grow uh, our, our company commercially, you know, get, get new clients, get funding to accelerate our, our vision, that's always welcome. Excellent. Well, thank you, Peter. This has been a real pleasure, and I've enjoyed exploring uh, some interesting areas. I hope you know definitely it's it's rare to find somebody who's got the the industry experience and and the ability to really tell the story. As I often say too, as I've I've got incredibly smart people I'm surrounded by on a regular basis, but I know a lot of great people that would probably not even pass a Turing test. It's really a beautiful mixture to be able to tell the story and relate the capabilities and 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 present the vision the way you do. And then also to actively affect the outcome. So it's uh, it's it's very welcome, and I I thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. This this was fun. Thank you.